0: And we, up until this point, dibarnu b'chlal. We've spoken about things in a general way. And from now on, it's necessary for us to get more particular about the material that we've discussed. And from now on, we have to try to get into more of the particulars. One of the principles that we've established over the, over the uh, duration of this discussion has been that the creation and all of the laws of that which God created are all tied in and connected to that aspect which we refer to as the realization and the revelation of God's uniqueness and His oneness. Oledava hazeh hazmanim. And because we talk about this world being created in a way that's sensitive to this goal of the, re- the the realization of God's exclusiveness and oneness, and the entire world is programmed to be sensitive to this. And we spoke about this over weeks. What does that mean? The sensitivity of the world to this? Well, and really, there are we can break up. This into two basic times. bihi the, nistar The one time, the first period of time is the time in which God's oneness and exclusiveness is essentially concealed and not known and certainly not appreciated, but is waiting to be revealed. V'hasheni, and the second period of time, acher isgala. And the second period of time that has to be studied is what would the world look like after this revelation. In other words, what Rav Meshachem Lutzat is saying over here is a very simple thing. Being that I explained to you that when God created the world, He created the world goal-oriented and programmed towards reaching a goal, a particular goal, that goal being the appreciation of God's exclusiveness and His uniqueness and the way the world starts off is without that appreciation, but that everything that happens in cause and effect between man and God is to reveal this. So therefore, by definition, we're talking about two periods of time. We're talking about one period of time in which we live in this state of concealment, and where the process begins slowly, by cause and effect, and man's action and God's response back and forth, that this this uh, exclusiveness and this uniqueness slowly becomes learned, slowly becomes revealed to man, and then we speak about a period of time after that goal is realized. So we're talking about two, two periods of time, the period of concealment and everything that is slowly revealing it, and then the next period of time would be the period after that goal is realized. And it's two different periods of time. And what's true of one period of time is not necessarily true in the other period of time. For example, in the period of time where God wants to demonstrate, uh, what wants man to learn his exclusiveness and his oneness, God is going to stand in the background and wait to be searched for, chosen for, while in the period of time after man has done that which is necessary to learn God's exclusiveness and oneness, God will not purposefully hide himself anymore. He will be out in the open. The nature of spiritual struggle will not exist. As the Prophet says, Yomim HaShe'eim BaHem There will be days where there won't be any negative desire anymore because then we will already be living in the in a state of realizing the rewards of of having come and having chosen that exclusiveness and that oneness. And this is sometimes perturbing to people. You know, people think that forever and ever life only has meaning if there's going to be constant growth through struggle. This is, uh, we have both ends of the spectrum. We have people that reject the whole notion of having to struggle to grow. And why couldn't God make it easy and I'm fed up with these struggles and these challenges and all of that? And then you have the other extreme that just can't imagine that life is going to be meaningful if everything is just going to be clear and there won't be any challenges left. Uh, the way one person once put it to me but Rabbi, right? life won't be worth living anymore if there won't be any of these challenges and pulls in opposite directions and this is something which is a bit hard for us to comprehend how that can be but what Rav Moshe Chaim is saying is that there is a distinct period of time and that's really referred to as the world of reward in which we have utter pleasure and utter fulfillment and utter satisfaction in having realized the truth and living and enjoying every moment of having reached that point of truth. And that is something which is meaningful unto itself. It's meaningful unto itself. Let me give you an example of this. Let me give you an example of this. and It's something that just came up in discussion uh, not so long ago. Um, We have a whole episode in the Chumash um, that I was learning with somebody in my office last week. An episode where Avram is Avram is coming and um, and trying to get his nephew Lot out of captivity. There was this war between the four kings and the five kings and the four kings captured the five kings and the five kings included the cities of Sdom and Amora and Lot had parted ways with Avram and was living in Sdom and Lot was taken into captivity. And Lot's being taken into captivity was he was a political prisoner. He wasn't a prisoner for any other reason because they knew that uh, that getting out Lot would eventually mean that Avram would fall into a trap because they knew that for sure Avram would try to save Lot and they'd finally be able to get a hold of Avram and kill Avram. Which was an ideological—that was an ideological battle that they had. And Avram, realizing that they were really looking for him, understood that he had to make a stand of his own, and that he was going to go and get Lot. And he relied—yes, he did—he relied on miracles, going out to a war against all odds, because he felt that he had the right to expect God's assistance, because the nature of the war was what he represented in terms of God. And therefore he felt that he was fighting God's war and that God would be there to help him. And he went out, he fought the war, he won the war, he got Lot out of captivity. And then we find the Pussik at the end of the whole war where God says to Avram, Altira Avram, don't be afraid Avram, Anoichi Maginlach, I will protect you, Scharcha Harbe Ma'id, and your reward in the world to come is great. So the commentaries explain, the commentaries ask the question, well, well how come all of a sudden Avram's worried about the world to come? I mean, it says in the ethics of our fathers, it says in the ethics of our fathers that, um, that the orientation of a person in terms of a Zavodah Hashem is that he's supposed to do it not because of the rewards, but he's supposed to do it because God said to do it, because it's the right thing to do, because God said, God instructed us to do it. And all of a sudden, and what's its relationship to the war? That Avram says after the war, God says to Avram after the war, don't worry, your reward is very great. So Rashi gives an answer which is very perplexing. Rashi says that being that Avram had to rely on miracles in order to win the war, the rule is that if a person has to have miracles happen to him, to, in order for him to be saved, this takes away from his reward in the world to come. If God has to become involved in supernatural ways, that takes a chunk away from his world to come. Because he's getting, in other words, he's getting a supernatural involvement here, that, uh, in this world, that really should come later. So, And this is why tzaddikim were always concerned that if things went too well, that they were getting paid here instead of there. And when it was a miracle, for sure they were concerned about it. So therefore, since he had just come out of a war that he had won miraculously, so he was concerned about his Olam Haba, that he had eaten up his whole world to come by this count. And therefore God says, don't worry, your reward in the world to come is very great. But it does avoid the essential question that Tzadikim are not concerned about the world to come their orientation is I'm doing this because I want the world to come and I'm waiting for the reward and I'm waiting for the bag of gold they're doing it because it was, this is what God asked them to do and if God asked them to do it it was the right thing to do so the answer is very simple we're confusing ourselves this is, this is a question that's a product of confusion because nowhere does it say that olam haba isn't valuable to the tzaddik of course Olam Haba is valuable to the Tzaddik. What is Olam Haba? Olam Haba is a situation which is described in the Talmud as Tzaddikim Yoshevim, that the Tzaddikim are essentially in a state of rest, which means they don't have the constant challenge and struggle anymore. And they have crowns on their heads, which I'll explain in a, minute, in a minute what that means. And they bask in the pleasure of the presence of God. Now, there's no Tzaddik in the world that's ready to give that up. I mean, that what Olam Haba is, is an ultimate spiritual connection with tremendous joy and tremendous fulfillment. And the tzaddik saw that and understood that as, as real life. And no tzaddik was ready to give that up. Now, that isn't to say that the orientation of the tzaddik was that because you're going to reward me in this way, that's why I'm doing it. I'm doing it because it's the right thing to do. I'm doing it because you've instructed me to do it. But after the person has lived the life the right way, the tzaddik's not doesn't say, well, I wasn't doing it for that, so I'm ready to give it up. No, the tzaddik's not ready to give it up. That's, that this This is ultimate life. This is real life. This the spiritual connection is fantastic. In fact, the Talmud says that that in Olam Haba every person becomes embarrassed. Quote-unquote burned of embarrassment of the, the spiritual canopy of his friend. That which he was really able to, to reach but wasn't able to reach. So it's a very, very deep and it's a very, very intimate kind of, uh, uh, of a connection that no Tzadik is ready to give up. It doesn't mean that the tzaddik is doing it because he's waiting for that reward. But when the time comes, the tzaddik is well-deserving of it and is in, 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 full, in full recognition, in full acceptance of that experience and wants it. On Am Moshe Rabbeinu's part, it was considered a tremendous heroism that he said to God that if you don't forgive the people for the sin of the golden calf, I'm not interested in this world or the next world. In other words, nothing is worth it. If the people don't have a guarantee of their eternity, nothing that I can experience here or in the hereafter is worth anything to me. Which was obviously a tremendous statement of his love for the people. That if I can leave this world not knowing what the future of the people that I raised is, the experience of the world to come isn't worth anything. So the supremest delight the real, the most real delight of the world to come, Moshe Rabbeinu was saying, in face of not knowing the future of my people isn't worth anything. But that's only because it's a demonstration of tremendous love of Kal But uh, a, 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 barring the tremendous love of Kal Yisrael, no tzaddik is, no tzaddik is prepared, no tzaddik is prepared that when the time comes to give that up. That's, 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 a, that's a supreme moment in time. And therefore, therefore, when Rav Meishchayim Letzata says that we break up the times into two separate periods of time, what Rav Meishchayim Letzata is saying is that each one of them has its value. Each one, you know, there's an expression, everything in the right time, in the right place, and that's exactly the attitude with which we have to learn these lines. There's a period of time that has to be appreciated as a period of time for growth. A period of time for challenge. And then there's another period of time, which is to be appreciated as a period of time to, to, to take in the rewards, to take in some of the pleasure, to experience some of the pleasure. Yes, to be a taker, instead of always to be on the front lines being challenged. Now, the truth of the matter is that this isn't, it's not as, 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 um, as torn apart as I make it sound to be I'm trying I the way I'm making it sound is like it's very segmented There's one period of time which is the world of challenge and then there's another period of time that's the receiving of the rewards for the challenge and I almost make it sound like it's two distinct periods of time, which it is, but never the twain shall meet. There's no there's no connection between the two. There's one time and then there's another time. You know, it's one era and it's a second era. The truth of the matter is that there is a natural flow from one era into the other. It's not as if for 3,000 years God says, you're challenged, challenge, 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 no rewards. And then all of a sudden one day God says, challenge is over, now it's time for rewards, everybody line up for your rewards. It's not that kind of an abrupt change of eras. The truth of the matter is that there is a flow. Even on the individual level, in one's own life, one can sense as one begins to grow that as one begins to be accomplished in certain challenges, one begins to get the hints of what lies ahead in terms of the reward, in terms of what is being accomplished. And I dare say that if man wouldn't get some hint of it, it would be very, very hard for the person to be able to move along and to plow the to, to plow the course forever and ever. So it's, I definitely don't mean to say that it's all work now and all play later. It's not that kind of a thing. Within the context of the work, there, is, there are the hints of the spiritual rewards that come later. And the best example of that is our whole attitude towards Shabbos. Our, the whole concept of Shabbos is the experience which gives the person uh, an inkling of how this world of work, 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 work and challenge is connected to the world of reward to the world in which we receive. Because on, on all levels, what we do with our week and how we prepare for Shabbos really is what's going to make the Shabbos that comes what it is. So I, even if you want to take it on its most simple level, I kill myself on of Shabbos, that the house should be in order, that everything should be cooked, that the children should have what they need, and that everything should be right, and that when Shabbos comes, everything is in its its right place, and everything uh, that should be on Shabbos is, is, is is prepared for Shabbos. So that's also a concept of Misha Tarach Be'erev Shabbos, Yochel Be'Shabbos. The person that works on Erev Shabbos reaps the benefits on Shabbos. So there is that relationship even within the context of how we grow, where there is a certain amount of work, 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 and there is a certain amount of, I hate to use the words, instant gratification, but an indication that it was worth it, that there's something that comes out of it. That there's, that, there's, that there's a result from it. And this is why Shabbos is referred to as In our literature, Shabbos is referred to as a part of the world to come. Because the concept of Shabbos is don't work, don't be challenged by the normal things that you're challenged all week. Enjoy yourself, enjoy the Shabbos. Right? So there is this concept of getting, um, getting a, a feel of of where the whole thing is leading which lies in the Shabbos, which is important because if I get a sense of where it's leading, it makes my challenge, it gives me more strength for my challenge along the way as well. So while they are distinct eras in time, one is called Olam and one is called Olam Haba, there's no question that there is a, a transition or well, there are experiences wh- which we we uh, can identify as a, bl- as a blending and a transformation from one world into the other world. There's no question about that. And this is what he's saying here the first period of time I'm reviewing that last line is a period of time in which God is hidden away but he is ultimately waiting to be revealed in the second period of time after he's revealed himself and it's in these two periods of time, time we can see these are the two periods of time in which we talk about the work of man and his accepting the rewards that he has accomplished through his work so if these are the two periods of time from now on now what we have to do is we have to analyze both periods of time the period of challenge and the period of reward we have to get into all of the particulars what are the conditions in the period of challenge what are the conditions in the period of reward And both of them are significant, as I just pointed out, because understanding all of the particulars of the world of reward, you know, a person says, well, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Uh, I have enough trouble figuring out the particulars of my challenges. Why talk about that? It's not so. Because because they are related to each other. They're not two unrelated parts. But one flows into the other. It is extremely significant for us to know what the final result is. Not because our orientation is we're doing it for that. But by knowing what the final result is, we have a better grasp. And we have a better appreciation and we have more strength to deal with the challenge. Because we know the significance of what it is that we're doing. And that's a very that's a very important point, which I'd like to touch on. I'd like to give an example. I'd like to give an example of this because reward and punishment is is very misunderstood because of our outside world. Let me give you an example of this. I don't believe that I ever shared it uh, with this group, and it's it's a very it's something that needs to be spoken about. There's um, the the our sages tell us, our Chazal tell us. That if Aaron would have known that the verses said that he went out and he greeted Moses when Moses came to tell him that he was chosen to be leader instead of Aaron, that he went out to meet him with a real heart that was happy and what didn't begrudge Moses three years younger than him being the leader, then Aaron would if he would have known that the verse would have recorded his the, the feelings that he had, he would have gone out with a ten piece band to to greet Moses. Now, the way that sounds to us when we read it is that if Aaron would have only known how history would have recorded him, he would have made it even more flowery and more elaborate so that he should have gone down even a more glorified way in, into history. We have a similar saying of our sages that when, that um, it says that Ruvain argued that Joseph should not, not be killed but he should be thrown into the pit and the verse says that though Reuven on the outside was just saying that we shouldn't spill his blood but I'm really with you in this plot against Joseph, but really what Reuven wanted to do was that after his brothers would leave, he would come back and he would save Joseph so in the verse it says that uh, that And Reuven's intention was to save Joseph. Not only was his intention to save Joseph, but the Torah says, "Vayatzileu miyadim," that the Torah gives him credit for his attempt at just delaying the punishment so that he could, in the future, save him. The Torah gives him credit, "Vayatzileu miyadim," he saved him. So again, our sages say, "Ilu yadav If Reuven would have only known how history would record his intent. Right? He would have carried Joseph back to his father on his shoulders now, in both of those situations, in both of those cases, it almost sounds like they had a little bit an eye on history and they were concerned with how history would record them, and because of that, ah, if I would have only known that the media would have given me such good coverage, I would have dressed up for it. I mean, that's what it sounds like. Now, what is that supposed to mean? So, Reb Chaim explains, and this is really a very phenomenal thing. Reb Chaim explains in the Sharalaf, in the very beginning of his famous sefer, the Nefesh HaChayim, Reb explains the following thing. Reb Chaim says that when it says at the beginning of Bracious, that God created man in His image, B'Tselem Elachim, what it means is that the same way that God is a master and a controller and a director of universe and not of universe, but universes of all the worlds, when God created man, B'Tselem Elachim, it meant that God gave man the ability with what He does to build worlds or destroy worlds. And when I say build or destroy worlds, I don't mean a development on a street corner. I mean the spiritual development and the spiritual connection of worlds, uh, elevating worlds or lowering worlds. If, and when it says that he created him, but means that he made man a creator, ultimately connected to everything. There is no greater creator in this world only second to God than is man. Nothing else in creation is a creator like man. And this has to do very much with the fact that man has a neshama, a soul which is connected to all worlds, which is a very involved Kabbalistic discussion which I'm not going to get into right now. But there'll be a time and place for it. And secondly, because everything that he does goes through the exercise of freedom of choice, That means that his final choices are creative choices, because he fought for the choice internally within himself. And therefore, the final result is an accomplishment. It's a creation of his, because he's made the choice. He's had the freedom to go either way, and he made the choice one way by the strength of conviction, so the strength of conviction concretized in choice becomes a creation, so man has the ability to create or destroy because of that freedom of choice that he has. In any case, Reb Chaim says that the statement yada ruben, "Ilu Yad Aruvin, Ilu Yad Aaron" if Reuven would have only known, if Aaron would have only known, they would have done it differently. Reb Chaim says, you know what it means—that these people, as great as they were, didn't realize the potency of their actions, the far-reaching effect of their actions. If the Torah says that they were far-reaching, then they're far-reaching. But when they went ahead and they did it, they didn't do it with the feeling or with the conviction that what I'm doing is important, that what I'm doing is significant, that what I'm doing is a contribution to the world. Yeah, who am I? I'm another speck on the universe. I make my little moves here and there, and after 120 years, if I only live so long, they bury me, and a few years they sob for me, and then they forget about me. And what's the big difference? What did I already do? What did I already accomplish? I have my own personal responsibility, and I can't get away from it. But am I am I accomplishing? I'm creating? I'm making a mark that's significant? And if it's significant to me, or if it's significant to my friends, it's significant to Hashem. Nah. What's, what's the significance of it? But when the Torah says it's significant, so there's no getting away from it. So what Reuven and and what Yo and uh, what Aaron are saying are. It's a pity that we didn't know how important what we are doing is. If we would have known, if we would have attached the the value that should have been attached to it, we would have done it with much more meaning. We would have done it with much more feel. But because I didn't believe that what I can do is important, I didn't do it with so much meaning. I didn't do it with so much feel, with so much feeling. This is what they were saying. So it's not the eye for the media. But they're saying is what they regret. It is I didn't know th- I didn't know that it could be so important. I, c- I didn't realize that it could be so. If I would have realized that it could be so important, I would have done it more. Let me give you an example. And this is somewhat of a, a I wouldn't call it a negative example, but it's a, an example from the side of what of destruction. But it's true on both sides. It's true on both sides, and it's important to share. It's important to share this idea. We talk about major crimes, and this is really a can of worms, but we talk about major crimes that the nations of the world perpetrated against us. And there's no doubt that they did. And there's no doubt that there will be a day that God is waiting for Lincoln to revenge all of the things that they did. There's no question about it. But the question that a Jew has to ask to himself is, that until that time that God straightens out the score, where do I have to direct my spiritual energy? Where is my focus? Do I focus on waiting with bated breath for God's revenge? Or is there something else that I should be doing in that period of time? What am I waiting for? Do I just curse under my breath never again? Do I just curse under my breath that I won't let it happen again? Do I curse under my breath that you're going to get you're, you're going to I'm going to get even with you or God's going to get even with you or is there another direction is there another thing another place where we channel the energies until that time comes What do we do So the Gemara talks about the fact that Titus I think in English it's Titus took a harlot took a prostitute and in, in, in wanting to defame the temple, took this harlot into the Holy of Holies in order to defame that place which was considered the holiest place for us. That was his intention. So the prophet wanted the prophet wanted to incriminate and enrage God by such a thing. How can you let such a thing happen? No matter what we did as a people, there's nothing that is bad as what Titus just did. And God's response to the Prophet was Kimcha All Titus was doing was was um, was threshing and grinding flour that was already ground. Now what is that supposed to mean? What's that expression supposed to mean? So Reb Chaim Velazhen explains the following thing, and this is a very fascinating thing. Reb Chaim Velazhen says, that the the temple the Besa Mikdash is, um, is really a model of the human being one can look at the Besa Mikdash and the different parts of the Besa Mikdash and one can identify that this part of the temple is the head of the person and this part of the temple is the hands of the person and this part of the temple is the heart of the person and so on and the physical body of the human being is symbolized in everything in the temple. Now, I'm not going to get into the reason why this is so, but just as a hint to this, we once spoke about the fact that really the entire body of the person is a mirror of God. And being that the physical body is a mirror of God, the temple is also that same mirror of God. All right, I'm not going to go into it. It's a very, very involved thing. But the Kaidish Kachim, the Holy of Holies, The Holy of Holies. What is that in terms of the person? What part of the person is the Holy of Holies? So Reb Chaim says it's the Lev Ha'adam. It's the heart of the person. So Reb Chaim says the following thing. There is a physical Beis HaMikdash. There is a physical temple which we had in Jerusalem. But the physical temple that we had in Jerusalem was the end result... Of our spiritual connection to God. So there was really a temple which we refer to as the temple in Shemayim the temple in heaven. What's that temple in heaven that we're talking about? That temple is the temple that is created spiritually between the heart of the Jew and Hashem. And it's not possible for there to be a temple on earth unless there is a temple in the heavens. Now what Rabchaim V'lazhinah says is, follow, is as follows. Titus was only able to enter into the temple on earth. The only one that can build or destroy the temple on high is Klal Yisrael. In other words, we build and we destroy the Kedush Kachim that's in Shemayim, The connection with Hashem that builds the Beis that's in Shemayim based on our building the Kodesh Kachem that's in Shemayim God says it can be brought down to earth and if we don't build it it can't be brought down to earth then it can't be brought down to earth so Reb Chaim says if Titus was able to take a prostitute into the Kodesh Kachem in the physical Beis HaMikdash down here it was because we brought a prostitute into the Beis HaMikdash into the Kodesh Kachem that was in Shemayim Titus can only affect the physical realm, but the yid affects the realms that are connected and that nurture those physical realms. So if Titus brought a prostitute into the Kaidish Kutchim down here, it was because there was one already in the Kaidish Kodashim in Shemayim. So Reb Chaim says, and how do you get a prostitute in the Kaidish Kutchim? What do you send them up with? Send the prostitute up with a concord jet? Of course not. The prostitute in Shemayim. The prostitute in Shemayim is what's in the person's heart. What does the person think about? What is the person lusting for? What is the person desiring? If the person has in his, in his mind uh, warped desires, warped lusts, and his mind and his heart is occupied with that, so he's placed a prostitute in his Kedesh Kachim, in the holiest place of his being then there's a prostitute in the Kaidish Kachem in Shemayim, then it's easy for Titus to put one down here. So, when the Prophet went to Hashem and said, listen, whatever we did, Titus did worse, because Titus actually, actually took a prostitute and put a prostitute in the Kadesh Kachem, God's answer was, no, Kim tachanta. Titus was grinding flour that was already ground, because Titus wouldn't have been able to do it unless we had already done it by Unless we had done it by And we have that connection to Shemayim. We have that connection to above. Now, I pointed out that that's on the negative side. All right? But it's equally true on the positive side. It's equally true on the positive side. That the same way that we say that we can either destry, that we can destroy the Kaidish Kachim above and then the end result is the destruction of the physical one down here, the opposite is also true. That we build the kaidish Kachim, we build the Holy of Holies, Lamala, and then, and only then, can the one down here be built. It has to be connected to the one above. And we build the one above with what's going on internally within ourselves. Now, I have a perfect example of this, and I'd like to show this with an example that we usually never connect but our Chazal tell us and this is, is it's, it's literally a bull's eye example our Chazal tell us that when Mashiach comes and when we will return to Eretz Yisrael God is going to take all of the houses of learning and all of the houses of prayer of Chutz L'Aretz, and he's going to take them to Yerushalayim and they're going to become part of the Beis HaMikdash now, to tell you the honest truth when I learned this Chazal as through the years, there were two pictures that came into my mind. The first picture that came into my mind is is lanes and lanes on super highways to Jerusalem with big signs on their back, oversized load, wide load, on these big tractor trailers going to Yerushalayim, that these literally these ba- these places were going to be taken from Chutz and they were going to be taken to Yerushalayim. That's the first picture that I added. The Chazal say it, that's what's going to be. So everything is going to be taken. So that's the first picture that came to my mind. The second picture that came to my mind is in an architectural disaster. Can you imagine taking every shul and every two by nothing, which are very important places in chutzlaritz, and put them all together in some kind of semblance of order that the base of should look like something normal? take all of the shuls from the east side, take all of the shuls for Hungary and Poland, and they're all going to go to Yerushalayim. I mean, what is the Beis HaMikdash going to look like? No, I mean it But the answer is very simple. The answer is that what our Chazal are telling us is it's not that the physical Beis HaMikdash is going to be taken on an oversized load tractor trailer to Yerushalayim. What our Chazal are telling us is that every place of learning and every place of davening was a place where a connection was created between man and Hashem. And every connection that's made between man and Hashem is a creation. It's not just a connection, I need something from you, Hashem, so I'm calling up the shopping center called God. I need something. A connection's being created. And there's a creation. That's being made. That creation, those bonds between man and Hashem, that are in personified in the houses of learning and the houses of davening and praying, those places are going to be the bricks. They're going to be the atmosphere. They're going to be the oxygen of the Beis Hamikdash. So when we say that that uh, that we hope that the Beis Hamikdash should be built in our times, yes, we mean the entire structure. But when we say we hope the Beis HaMikdash is going to be built in our times, we mean the part of it that we can build. The bonds that we can create. The energy that we can make between ourselves and Hashem. Which is the guts of the Beis HaMikdash. That's the real Beis HaMikdash. The physical Beis HaMikdash will be the end result. The physical Beis HaMikdash in Yerushalayim when it will be built will not be the end result of some major construction firm in Jerusalem. It will be the conglomerate result of all of the tears that were cried for Hashem through history. It'll be the end result of every attempt that a Jew made through thick and thin, through tragedy and happiness towards Hashem that's going to build the base of Miktash. It's a collective building. There's a momentum that's building it. That's why it says, Kalam is Abel whoever will mourn the destruction of the temple will be meritorious to see its, 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 its erection now there's a big problem with this Chazal because there were thousands if not millions of Jews that mourned for the Beis HaMikdash and did not see its erection so our Chazal, God forbid, God forbid, telling us a lie. The person who mourned its destruction will see its erection. Will see its erection, but there were millions that didn't. So what do we do with the Chazal? Which lifetime? What? Which lifetime? No, it, 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 it doesn't say in the future it's Roah B'Binyana it doesn't say it doesn't refer to the period of Tchiyas HaMesim or anything like that Roah uh, B'Binyana so the Baal Yisoscha a great Hasidic master the B'nai Yisoscha says Roah B'Binyana doesn't mean the physical erection Roa binyana means that a person that can cry over the lack of a connection to Hashem comes to create a connection between himself and Hashem in his lifetime Roe b'binyana means that Hashem becomes erected to in, within Himself. The Beis HaMikdash Lama'ala. We don't have the physical presence yet, but for this person he's Roe. he sees the realness of a Beis of, HaMikdash. Because by his crying for it and yearning for it, he's building it internally. He's building it internally. So, getting back um, or trying to at least getting back to over here when we talk about the period of time of Kibble Shari when we talk about the time of Kibble Shari we have to realize that the the, the concepts of Kibble Shari the concepts of reward the concepts of Olam Abba understanding all of the pichkifkis all of the nuances of what Olam Abba is all about is not some kind of uh, pursuit that we do in ta- when we don't have anything to do with our time. We we'll leave leave the world of reality and go into fantasy land. The concept of kibbulskari the concept of is extremely vital in order to build within us a sense of the potency and the far reaching effects of what we do. In other words the function the purpose about talking about kibbutz is not because we are oriented we're mer- we're oriented in a mercenary way and we're doing it for this gain we're doing it or we try to do it as much as we can for the purest of reasons but to get involved in kibbutz to get involved in the concept in the concept of reward has its meaning has its meaning because by understanding the reward, what's reward? Reward is what you create. It's not just some external pat on the back. It's what you create. Reward is synonymous with what you've created, how you've grown. You show a person how he's grown to the extent that he can understand it that gives him a completely different understanding of what he's capable of doing. See, if reward is only seen as if you're good, I'll be good with you. No. So then the only purpose of showing a person rewards is to motivate him to do it. You know, do it for the reward, because if you'll be good, I'll be good to you. But if the concept of reward is that this is what I'm creating with my actions, it's extremely timely to talk to a person about the concept of kibble skaro. Because in talking about the acceptance of reward, a person is not only learning, oh, if I'll only do this, this is what I'm going to get. Not in that that, uh, mercenary sense, but he's going to understand that what he's doing has power. It has potency. It's far-reaching. It's significant. It's important. It's alive. It lives after the action is finished. And a person needs to know that because if a person doesn't know that and doesn't believe it, how much can you put into what you're doing? How much can you put into what you're doing? We, we function uh, out, of, out of a connection to what we're doing. So we're not doing it for the mercenary reason we want a reward. Good, but we have to know that what we're doing has significance. I mean, nobody is going to do something without attaching some level of significance to what he's doing. I mean, normal people don't do that. Or most of the time, they don't do that. So the significance of it is very important. Now, let me give you an example. Reb Chaim, Letzata, a little later on in this book, gets into a discussion of Neshama. He wants to explain to us what a Neshama is. And God willing, we're going to get to that. There's one chapter that we have to do about the creation of evil, and then we go into this chapter all about Neshama. And when he starts with this discussion of Neshama, he starts off by telling us that the Neshama is created in order for us, to stimulate us and to motivate us and to drive us to do that which is right and to bring us towards God. And then he makes an abrupt halt in his discussion and all of a sudden he jumps and he goes into the world of Treyas Mason, the world of resurrection, which is even after Mashiach comes after Mashiach comes there's a concept that all of those that have passed away will come back to life in a new unity of body and soul and all of a sudden he gets into a discussion about body and soul and resurrection. So Rav Meshachai Mutzata says you're wondering the seichel is saying to this, the intellect is talking to the soul and the intellect says to the soul you're wondering how come I skipped about 4-5 or five thousand years and I'm going all the way to resurrection. So he gives a very simple answer and he says that which man ultimately reaches in the end was always there from the beginning in the potential and therefore if we are trying to define the potentials of the neshama one of the most accurate ways of defining the potential of the neshama is to know the far-reaching result and effect of what the Right, so if I can prove for you, so if I can show you what the final result is going to be, if I can show you what the final result is going to be, so then you know that that's the energy that's cooking in the neshama from the very beginning. It's not necessarily all realized, it's not necessarily all active, but it's all there potentially. It's cooking. It's cooking. That's what it's begging for expression. And that's important to know. Because in other words, if I know the ultimate kibbal so then I, have, I understand what's inside of me. The notion that there's going to be some kind of uh, tremendous bang, and then there's going to be some kind of spiritual renaissance and this is a spiritually exalting period of time. This is nonsense. Rabbi Moshe Chaim says that the the, the 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 spiritual connections to God and the rewards and the fulfillment that is felt in those connections. Is what the Neshama is begging for from the moment that it's put into the person. And Moshe Chaim Lutzata says, and that's important for a person to know. He has to know what he wants. You know, people come and say, I don't really know what I want. Huh? It's, you know, I mean, this, this is why the discussion of kibbutzkare is not something which is, you know, not the time to discuss. Now, there are other points to this. I want to touch on one more point, which is important, and then we'll go back to the text. There is an aversion, and it's more prevalent in non-traditional Jewish circles than it is in traditional s- circles to be nervous to talk about Kibble to talk about the world of reward. Um, I don't know if I ever related to you the story that happened to me in, in um, North San Diego County in a place called Vista, California. I went there for a lecture series on an introduction to Judaism. And in my introduction to Judaism, I don't pull any punches, and I get right to the point, and I talk about concepts of neshama and concepts of olam of the world to come, and afterlife. And here, so innocently, I'm talking about afterlife, and a person in the fourth, fifth row in front of me jumps out of his seat and screams at me and says, "Rabbi, are you Jewish?" Now that's the first time that that question was ever asked to me. What do you think I look like? But uh, though I have been mistaken t- for being Amish, but uh, what the person was what the person was amazed by was that Judaism believes in afterlife. And he went on to argue that his rabbi and that his teachers told him that the main thing is here and forget about anything afterwards and you you don't have to be concerned with afterwards and the whole thing is not relevant and uh, so on and so forth. And uh, afterlife comes from the cults and it comes from other religions and uh, from Hinduism and this and that. And I had a very hard time proving my legitimacy to him. Uh, I pull, pulled open the prayer book we say it three times a day Mason, that God will resurrect the dead uh, you, you say it three times a day it's not a Hindu concept it's a Jewish concept I don't know if in the end he believed me or not but let me explain and I'm not trying to be facetious by this but let me explain let's understand the nature of the problem I thought a long time about this and I've discussed this with colleagues and with teachers as well I don't know if it's conscious or subconscious, but people like to be, as much as possible, in control. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that when I do something, I want to know what's going to be the end of it. I'll give you an example. You go to a doctor, and the doctor diagnoses that you have such and such an ailment and there is no real medicine for it but there is an experimental drug go home and become a guinea pig for this experimental drug all right? The chances are that you will not take the drug until you have a very clear knowledge of all of the possible side effects not the guaranteed side effects the possible side effects and even if it's one in one hundred thousand that gets heart palpitations from it or get something else from it. I'm going to be very nervous. Okay, um, I'll be even more nervous about an experimental drug that's so new that we don't even know what the side effects are. They're not documented yet. There are plenty of side effects, but we don't know exactly what they are yet. Most normal people, unless they're desperate, will move forward with very with a lot of caution. Okay, and that's. That's being smart about it. That's being intelligent about it. Now, if I were to tell you that when a person does a mitzvah or that when a person does an Avera, we don't know the side effects. We don't have a way of measuring the side effects. We don't have a way of measuring the side effects. We just know that for doing something positive, the side effects are very great in a positive and if if it's a negative thing, the side effects are very negative. What they are exactly, we don't know. But there are side effects. But we don't know what they are. If that would be our attitude towards mitzvahs and our if this is how we would approach it, if this is the way we would approach it, we would be very, we would be very scared to meddle with it. The idea that, well, it's a very good mitzvah, but I don't need it. Shabbos is for resting. I rest on Tuesdays. That's when my boss gives me off, so I don't need Shabbos. So, so on the practical levels, I don't need Shabbos. Shabbos is given as a day of rest. It's day is given as a day of spiritual introspection. God, uh, Rabbi, my day of Shabbos is on Tuesday. And don't laugh. Somebody actually was arguing with this point with me. Rabbi, everything that you do on Shabbos, I do on Tuesday. I asked him if he eats no. he said no. But, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but, the, the point, but the point being, the point being that if our attitude towards Judaism is that it has far-reaching effects, and it has far-reaching effects beyond the realms in which we can measure, so then, in a certain sense, there's a hiddenness to every mitzvah and to every avera that eludes us, that's beyond us. And therefore, we will stand back and we'll say, I don't want to touch it. I don't want to disrupt it. Because even though I can deal with everything that's on the conscious levels, and I can measure out if on on all of the practical levels that I know about, if it's real for me or not real for me, but how do I know that the deeper and the more hidden effects aren't relevant even in my case? If I don't know what they are, how can I measure them? if the only reason for Shabbos is because a person needs to rest for a day. So I rest on Tuesdays. What's wrong? I start my seven-day cycle starting on Wednesday morning. My Wednesday morning is everybody else's Sunday morning. But if I know that there are other reasons behind the mitzvah, so then even though the ones I measure don't apply to me, but the ones that I can't measure, I have no way of knowing. So you don't start up with something like that because you're afraid of what you might be destroying or what you might not be creating that you have the ability to create. But it all starts but it all starts from knowing that what we do has effects beyond what we physically, measurably can see. Now, if you if you approach Judaism with pick and choose and let's see what applies and let's see what's relevant to today You can't go with that kind of Ashita, you can't go with that kind of approach to Judaism and at the same time believe in afterlife because they're not consistent with each other. Unless you believe that afterlife is just sitting under some kind of a palm tree and some pretty lady is dripping grapes into your mouth uh, and that's what the whole afterlife is, maybe. But if afterlife is anything in the spiritual realms which are beyond our measurement so then we can't approach Judaism with our yardsticks to measure because we're measuring something that doesn't have the normal yardsticks I can measure it for if it's important in my 70 years of life but I can't measure if it's important in terms of the thousands of years of my life after the physical world I don't have the yardsticks Barons didn't make the ruler for that yet that ruler wasn't made yet so how can I measure that so that's why there is, on, I don't know if it's on a conscious level, but on a subconscious level, there is a rejection of anything which is unknown. There's a rejection of anything that speaks of who knows what you might be doing with what you're doing. Because once you start subscribing to afterlife and to these funny concepts of neshama and things of that nature, and it's not just the cultural way of Judaism uh, uh, continuing to eternity, you can't, you can't talk out of the two sides of your mouth at the same time. It's impossible. And this is why, this is why it is critical to talk about concepts of Kibble share. It's important to talk about those things because taking those things out of the forefront minimizes the scope of what we're doing and the scope of what we're affecting. And when we minimize it, of course we're cutting, we're cutting a major chunk of it Away, we're we're tearing away at a major chunk of what it's all about. There's a rule. I'll finish with this. There's a rule, but this this uh, this personifies it. We're all when we go through school. Those of us that have gone through yeshiva know that there are different categories of mitzvahs. There are those mitzvahs that are are sichlius that make sense. That even if God would tell us wouldn't tell us to do them we would do them for the sake of social order they are those mitzvahs then there are mitzvahs that even though they're not for the social order but we understand that there are certain institutions and we can give reasons for them they're not for the social order but we can give reasons for them they're commemorative they bring out certain concepts and then there's another category which is called chukim which is called uh, chukim what's chukim? If I would translate a khik into English, it would be don't ask any questions, we don't know the reason. Do it anyway. Yes. That's what chukim are. And we we thank our lucky stars that there are only a certain amount of chukim in the Torah. Okay? Because people like to do things with reasons. They want to know why they're doing them. They want to be connected to them. So thank goodness there are only some chukim in the Torah and thank goodness they're not all chukim. Isn't this the way we usually go through our learning? Of, but the truth of the matter is that this is not accurate. This is not this is not a- accurate at all, because let me let me give it over with an example. At the beginning of the portion of the Red Heifer, of the Paraduma, uh, it says Zos Khukasatara, This is a chok of the Torah, which means that we don't understand how it works. The ashes of the red heifer it comes into contact with the person it makes him impure and the person that's impure it makes him pure I I mean that's a paradox it doesn't make any sense we don't understand it at all so we burn this animal and it has to be an animal that's pure red and that it never had a yolk and we take the ashes and we mix it with moss and with water and we sprinkle it sounds like voodoo stuff so Rashi brings that there were there were once these heretics that went up to a Talmudic sage I, I forget his name now and uh, point to this law of the red heifer and say you know you know different than the, those uh, the people that believe in voodoo voodoo and all of the other stuff you got black magic in your religion too and if not explain explain what this is all about. Explain what this is all about and essentially, uh, essentially Rashi, Rashi brings the Medrash and Rashi says that the way he answered the, the, the heretics was the following way. He said to the heretics that you know in, uh, there's a form of medicine where you burn certain herbs and the person who is mentally unbalanced if he smells these herbs and he meditates and he relaxes it calms his psychological state of disorder. So he said that that's the way the red heifer works it's it's a it's a disorder and by smelling these incenses and things like that you know that's what straightens them out so the heretic in other words we don't understand how herbs work so you don't understand how this works and leave me alone so after the heretic left after the heretic left the uh, the disciples of this sage go over to him and say okay you gave the guy a bum answer that's not the answer i mean what's the real answer what's the real answer to which the, he answered various things and the last thing that he answered them was gazar right? this, There are certain things that are etched into, into creation. There are certain things that were decreed and don't ask any questions. And that's the answer. Now, what kind of an answer is that? In other words, if the sage would have said there is no answer, no, nope, that's all right. But he said I'm going to tell you the answer the answer is that's not an answer telling somebody that you have no right to ask that's an answer mm-hmm. so the the, the Balakeda, a great Spanish uh, Jewish Spanish philosopher answers it in the following way he said there comes a point in time that giving reasons for mitzvahs can be counterproductive Now listen carefully because this is tricky. Because when a person gives a a reason for a mitzvah and one's whole orientation to doing the mitzvah is because I know the reason for the mitzvah. So what happens when you get to a mitzvah that you don't know the reason for? There's a mountain to climb there and you're not so sure that you're going to climb it. Because your whole orientation, your whole orientation Altogether is because of reasons. So what this sage understood is that what he has to train his students, what he has to train his students is that there's a level of performance that comes not just because we understand, but there's a part of our performance that comes because this is what God wants. And even if I personally don't necessarily understand the reason, the fact that God wants it, wants it is enough of a reason as well. Why? Because if I start getting involved in reasons, I'll never get finished with it. Because the reason this is the reason for this, but what will then be the reason in this case? And when I'll get stumped, or if I can find that the reason doesn't apply anymore, out with the mitzvah. This is what the Balakeda says. But really, really, what the Balakeda says goes one step deeper. And what the Balakeda and he says it, I'm not inferring it in his words. What the Balakeda is saying is that the truth of the matter is that every mitzvah is a Chaik. Every mitzvah has elements of Chaik. In other words, when I if I'll come and I'll give you a reason. So you know a reason. But even the reasons that you give for any mitzvah is not the full reason. It's a reason that we can comprehend it's a partial connection to the mitzvah. It might be enough of a connection for me to be motivated to do the mitzvah. But it's not the whole reason. We can never know the whole reason for any mitzvah of the Torah. Because any mitzvah of the Torah is rooted in the will of Hashem. The will of Hashem is based in the wisdom of Hashem. The wisdom of Hashem is beyond our grasp in its entirety. So what this Tana is saying is I can give you a reason I can give you a reason but I want you to understand that after all of the reasons after everything is said and done there there is God etched certain wills and certain desires into creation and we have to do it because those are the wills that God established for the world that he created and that's really true of all of the mitzvahs of the Torah that's really true of all there are certain ones that almost act as models that tell us if the red heifer can be so mysterious and so paradoxical and so way out of our comprehension this gives us this suggests to us that maybe we really don't know the real reason for a lot of other mysteries also there's a rule that when something goes out of the rule it doesn't only go out of the rule to teach something about itself but to teach something about the entire thing So here we have a mitzvah. It goes out of the rule of all other mitzvahs of making sense to us. So when it's going out of the rule of making sense, so what is it coming to say? This doesn't make sense? Or there is an element in every mitzvah that doesn't make sense to us, which means that we don't understand it. We don't fully grasp it. Okay, let's come back over here. Me'ata... So we have to know the particulars of both times and how they are connected to each other. That's everything that I've been talking about now. You you see the words? And how these two periods of time are connected to each other. We've been dedicating this evening to understand the significance of these words. The connection to each other. Okay? Since man is moving from one world into the other through a slow process of growth, there has to be a place of connection. It's not an abrupt hole to one system and the beginning of another. There has to be a connection here. There has to be a flow. There has to be a transition. There has to be a growing into that's going on here. How do we understand that? We have to understand the particulars of both and see how they are synchronized, how they flow into each other. Shehu hama'aber shebein ha And if we understand the, the connection of these two worlds, we will understand how one world is a bridge to the other world. A bridge to the other world. Listen to those words, words. A bridge to the other world. Let me settle on this for a minute. Because this is something that we just pass by very, very quickly. And we don't really know what it means. Reveillot Desler makes a statement. And the first time that I saw the statement in his essays, I was astounded. He makes the following statement. He says, "There is virtually nothing that happens in a life in the life of a person that is not tailored. That is not tailored in preparation for the person's world to come." Those are the words. There is nothing that happens in the life of a person that is not a hachana leolam haba. That is not a preparation to the world to come. That means every disappointment, every failure, every success, every event that happens in a person's life that one doesn't even think about twice, everything, all of the different things that play upon us consciously and subconsciously and make us who we are and change us to who we are to be, every single one of them is measured out as a response of Hashem when with God asking one question, how can I bring this person, and I owe closer to Olam Abba? I mean, we talk in biographies of great people that before they ever did anything, they asked themselves the question: Would my father have done this, or would my Zayda have done this, or would my Bubba have done this? What would my Bubba have done in this case? This is a, uh, this is something which. I've heard a lot about but which I now live with uh, in a great measure as an example for my wife because my wife had to take over the position of her mother in Beis Yaakov as the principal of the seminary. My mother-in-law was a very very special person. She brought the whole concept of Beis Yaakov to America fifty years ago and now with my wife taking over her position when critical spiritual life and death decisions come be asked my wife always tries to find a parallel for a case of how her mother decided such a situation and that's and I heard this I mean, it's not an unusual thing it's not just try it's not denial of the past but it's it's a real concept in Yiddishkeit which deserves a whole discussion of its own <laughs> which essentially means if you don't have any leaders, Well, if you don't have anybody to guide, you look at the imprints and the footsteps of past history and use them as the guide. While in technology and everything else, we try to dismiss the past and advance into the future, the greatness of Judaism is the greatness of our past and using our past as an indicator of how we move into the future. In any case, but this idea, this idea of 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 using a model, using a model of the past. Using the model of the past. <coughs> how did I get to this? I forgot how I got this. What, what? The bridge. Oh, the bridge. So the bridge. So uh, this is what I saw in in Revelio Desla. So I saw in Revelio Desla that he says that virtually everything that happens in a person's life. Uh, everything that happens in a person's life is a hachana, is a preparation to that world to come so i was quite astounded by that i mean what, what is that what is that all supposed to mean what, what is everything that happens and then revelio desler brings it out he points it out he 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 proves it and he says because the Chazal say because our sages say <speaking in the world> that this world is a corridor and the next world is the palace <speaking in> the <world> get yourself ready in the corridor so that you can go into the palace now, I was familiar with this Chazal too the Chazal didn't astound me but you know what Re- Revalio dessler is saying what Revalio dessler is saying is that that Chazal Take it for what it means. In other words, we look at life and we say, I have my life, and I have different things in my life, and different things happen to me in my life, and besides everything that happens to me in my life, I also have an obligation to Hashem. I have to do certain things. I have to stay away from certain things. i got to be a good boy. i got to be a good girl. But I have my life. and I have my Yiddishkeit. But the notion that my whole life is my Yiddishkeit and that everything that happens in my life is all oriented and all directed towards Olam Habo which really means directed towards a connection with God. Do we really think like that when we look at life? We don't really think like that. Everything that's happening is goal oriented towards Hashem. We don't think like that. But what Revelyo Desle is saying is I'm not saying anything new that's the Chazal this world is a corridor and the next world is the palace how many people like to spend their life spend their life uh, uh, building, building a home in a hallway people don't build holes in home, hallways people travel through hallways a hallway has its purpose you have to travel it if you don't travel it you can't get to the door you can't get into the palace but it's a hallway. And what Reveille Odessa is saying is don't forget it. It's a hallway. It's nothing else. It's a hallway. And that's why Reveille Odessa says, so when I make the statement that everything that happens to a person is in preparation for the next world, I'm not saying more than what the sages are saying. The sages are saying that life is a hallway. We don't think like that. We don't, we, we, we don't, we don't take it like that. We don't think, we don't think of it in that, in that manner, in that sense. And that's really what the word bridge means. That's really what the b- word bridge means. There's this world and there's the world to come. And he says and we have to understand the connection between the two worlds. And if we understand the connection between the two worlds, then we can know how one flows into the other because one is a bridge to the other. What is Reveilleux Dessler saying? What Reveilleux Dessler is saying is that everything that happens in this physical world is a bridge to that exalted place of Kibul Skari now there are two major implications to that statement the first one is that we have to view this world as a medium towards that connection to Hashem in Olam Haba we have to view it as a medium and view it as a medium not as an end unto itself with some conditions of religious observance attached to it it's a medium that's a very high level Right? It's a very high level. But there's another thing, and which is a very positive thing, which I want to touch on. Sometimes people get spiritually oriented to the extent that they have problems dealing with this world in its physical sense. Now listen carefully to what I'm saying here. And this is another one of the terrible confusions of dealing with Allah Abbas. Sometimes, you know why people don't want to talk about Olam Abad they don't want to talk about Qibble because they don't know after they dis- discuss kibbul Shara they don't know how to reconcile it with their involvements in the physical world it becomes very contradictory to what they're doing in a physical world and they don't have a way of reconciling it so if you talk about kibbul Shara you talk about all of these spiritual things then I, I don't know how to integrate the concepts of being in a physical world. And I, I might even feel guilty about it. And I might feel I, I'll, I'm suspicious that I'll be compelled to leave the physical world. And I'm not interested in doing that. And this is some of the reasons why we avoid that. We don't want to talk about all of my we And we, uh, we, we argue it very very intellectually you're not there and the main thing is to be good here and forget about the next world and so on and so forth but what's really bugging us is because that creates a commotion because when we talk about things in spiritual senses and certainly if we talk about it the way Desla spoke about it that everything is just the preparation for the gee whiz you just pulled a whole carpet of pleasure out from under my feet you you just ruined all the life for me I'm not interested it's to be good here and to enjoy here. And leave me alone with the next world. We have a problem with it. But the truth of the matter is it's confusion. Because the truth of the matter is that when our Hazal say this world is a corridor to get to the palace, what our chazal is saying is that there's no way to get to that tremendous place of spiritu- spirituality without the contact with the physical world. A person that wants to say I want to get there quick Right? So I'm going to go cold turkey on the whole physical world. Maybe even end my life, so I'll get there faster. It's nonsense! If you didn't, if you didn't fight in the ditches of the physical world, there is no Olam Habah. The Olam Habah is created by the experience of the physical world, and we have to look at it in a positive vein. We don't have to look at the physical world as a contradiction. When it says that this world is a preparation for the next world, in our mind, if we really believe that statement, you know what we think? Get through it as fast as you can. Do your best at it. Don't get involved in it. Because it's only a preparation for the next world. That's not right. That's not right. What hasken asmuchah the means, it means be involved in it, be take from it, be connected to it, enjoy it because it's your experience here that's going to get you there. And if you're in denial of the hallway, you can't get to the doorway. So it should be appreciated. It shouldn't be looked down at. All right? The human being can get to an Olam Haba that a Malach cannot get to. The connection that a Jew has in his reward in Olam Haba after he leaves this world is a greater connection than the connection of the greatest and holiest angels to God. And this is why in our sages it says that when we reach Olam Haba the angels will ask God what are you busy doing? And God is saying well ask my Secretary of Defense who is your Secretary? The Jewish people. The angels will have to ask us what God is doing. I'm not going to go into what that means symbolically and figuratively. I'm not going to talk about that right now. But the point being that we reach levels beyond the connections that even angels have. Why? They didn't have this world. They didn't have the physicality of this world. They didn't have the challenges of this world. So it should, the physicalness of this world should not be viewed as a contradiction that we got to get through. All right? we, we have to deal with it. We... I, we, we're involved in it. We're involved in it, but we have to take it in a, in a proper direction. And that's what a bridge is. When you talk about a bridge, all right, a bridge needs to be have a foundation on both sides. If a bridge is connecting two, 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 two lands over a body of water, all right, it cannot only have a foundation at its destination. It needs a foundation at the point that it, that it's, the bridge starts as well. It needs a foundation at both points. If it doesn't have a foundation, there's no way of crossing the bridge. Right? And that's also a part of the concept of the bridge. And this is very much um, a basic concept of what Lazaro talks about. We have to study the next world to know what our potentials in this world are. We have to study this world to know what our challenges are. But every single thing in this world is a ma'aber. It's a bridge. It's a preparation to be able to get to that place. So there is no inconsistency. There are a lot of challenges. There's a lot of falling. There's a lot of stumbling. There's a lot of detours. There are a lot of dead ends. There's a lot of stuff. But the intention of all of it is a bridge to the next world. And it should be viewed that way. It's two eras. If we could sum up what we are saying this, this evening before I take questions, essentially what we're talking about is we're talking about two eras. We're talking about two worlds that is, as dramatically different as they are, they're remarkably alike in the sense that one creates the other and one is a bridge to the other. Right? And all of what we've talked about, if we're talking about the concepts of kibul or about the challenges that lead us there, it's all that, yes, there are different eras, but there are two parts of a whole. They're all parts of a whole thing. They're all parts of a oneness that is accomplished over a measure of time. Each one is perceived separately, but really, they really come together as a one unit, because one is leading to the other. So in essence, if one is leading to the other, they're really one they're different challenges, they're different processes, they're different techniques, they're different methods, but it's all one thing. All right? And it's very important that a Jew realizes that we don't live either the perception of ourselves as two separate entities, physical and spiritual, or that the world and the next world is two different entities. we got to get rid of the fragmentation. we got to get rid of splitting things, making things into pieces. This is all wrong. We're not pieces and the world is not pieces and where we're going is not pieces. There's a flow. And the trouble comes when we break things up. When we break things up and we isolate and we don't see the relationship of one to the other, then that's when we run into the problems. But if we work to see them together, so then there is a natural flow from one into the other. I'll take questions now on anything that I touched on. Yes, all the way back there. No, not, not really. The, um, the concept of, neshama, of angels altogether is a very, very confusing topic. That's the truth of the matter. What an angel is altogether is a very confusing topic. According to many, the concept of angels is only to speak in our language so that we should be able to conceptualize a messenger of God. According to many, that's all it is and that therefore all of the attempts that we make at describing what an angel is as a particular entity we have to we have to realize that it's dibratara balashan adam that god's talking in our language so that we should be able to conceptualize something that's at least close to the world which we we live in that we associate with that's the first thing that i must tell you about angels uh and therefore according to that concept angels are, uh, in many senses, symbolisms of conduct, figures of speech, of different things that God does or wants to accomplish in his world. Um, there is a concept that when a person does something positive, he creates an angel, a good angel. And when he does something negative, he creates a negative angel, an angel of prosecution. Which again... Uh, only, only further supports the contention that I'm making that we we're not talking about entities in the way that we really literally talk about entities. Okay, um, it's it's a creation on spiritual levels, and we try to imagine: do they have wings? Do they have one leg? What do they look like? But that's all adam, according to many. According to many, that's that's what the the concept of angels is. Now. Along those lines of the concepts of angels, we talk about angels serving God and man serving God. okay Along whatever that concept of the symbolism of what an angel is, we talk about an angel being a model that serves God and man as a model which serves God. In those two models serving God, all of the, our literature says that while the model, of the angel is definitely of a higher level because it doesn't know physical form and it doesn't know physical limitation in one sense man is greater than the angel the angel is always referred to as an omade, as a stationary being and the human being is always referred to as a mahalach as one that is walking and that distinction lies in the fact that man has choice the angels do not have choice Man is involved in the challenge of integrating a physical world and an angel is not. Those two differences make the difference between man being a mahalach and an angel being an omate. The, I, I, I faintly remember. I faintly remember that there is there's somewhere that under a certain circumstance that Hashem takes neshamos that don't go through the normal course of existence, and Hashem will will do things with neshamos. There's something uh, faintly in my recollection that refers to something that you're talking about, but it's def- definitely not the rule. It's definitely not the norm. No, not at all. Not at all. If you want a more detailed discussion of this concept of angels, the place to look, I don't know if you... It's very deep stuff, but uh, Steinsaltz has a book, Thirteen Petaled Rows, in which he discusses the, these concepts. And there he discusses this. Yeah, Jan? Um, how does the concept of people's star eyes relate to the fact that Hashem creates us with certain uh, hisranness yeah right how does that relate to it in that most of us end up unfortunately dying without ever having reached our potential shoulders and so how does I mean is it equal to the amount is there a ratio? Is there a proportion? And exactly. Kind of, exactly. Exactly. There is a proportion. Yeah. I mean, the fact that there are chesronos is not inconsistent with the concept of kibble Because kibble scharo, the real depth of the concept of, of receiving reward, which is connection to Hashem, is man's accomplishment. It's man's creativity because of his chesronos and his overcoming the chesronos. The ultimate connection the deepest connection that man can make to God is the ones that he created through his choices. So the fact that man is created with Chesronos is not inconsistent with the concept of Kibbutz because the fact that he has challenges and he has to make choices is the one that is what makes him the rightful possessor of his connection to God when the time does come because he did it. He accomplished it. He made it happen. To the extent that a person doesn't accomplish it, it doesn't mean that there isn't kibbutzharu. Kibbutzharu is an exact measure to the extent of the accomplishment, the proportion that you're talking about. That's definitely true. Yeah, Phyllis. like that where they overcame all this how do we deal with that in this generation where we're not quite up there okay um, the question of the wise person has within it half the answer you answered your own question um, the rule that you have to work with the rule that you have to work with is that at the point that my involvement in the physical world, or my, better yet, my indulgence in the physical world, is preventing me from taking the next realistic step in my spiritual growth towards Hashem, is where I have to be concerned that I'm too attached to this world in other words in other words where there is a direct conflict between my physical attachment to this world and what I have as my next mission to accomplish that is where I have to now tell myself that a trade has to be made I have to be able to let go I have to be able to relinquish to allow myself to grow to the next step I can't let this stand in the way of what is accessible to me and what is going to make me a bigger person. But going cold turkey on, on involvements in the physical world to be able to grasp spiritual levels that are way beyond me 20, 30, 40 steps beyond me will leave me totally frustrated and unnurtured because I'm giving up my connection here and I'm really not connecting to anything else that's to nurture me. And Riv Meish Chaim Litzata starts with a, a very basic principle at the beginning of his book, Maseilos Yesharim, that man was created to have pleasure. That's an interesting thing for a holy man to say. Man was created to have pleasure, but what 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 Lazaro is saying in that is that the drive of man is to have pleasure and we have to reckon with that drive now, to the extent that we are ready to fulfill that drive of pleasure with qualitative spiritual nurturing we have to do it and to the extent that something else is taking up the room and not allowing that to become my involvement and my connection and pleasure I have to exercise the discipline and the precious that the Svarim talk about but to the extent that I'm going to say the first thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to deny myself everything. And then maybe...